I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Anne Filippi, founder of The New Health Club. If you want to know about psychedelics as new mental health tools, you came to the right place. I talk to innovators, thought leaders and disruptors, creating the future of mental health and mental wellness. And we think that the future is already here. Hi, and welcome to a new episode of the New Health Club show. Let me ask you a question. Where do you go before you are looking into a psychedelic experience or before you are booking a psychedelic experience. To which community will you belong afterwards, after your trip? What if you need a new community after a trip? We all know what happens in your trip doesn't stay in your trip. You want to talk to your friends, to your family, but also to a new community. You need communication and exchange beyond integration therapy. This is what Robert Bent is thinking about a lot, and this is also a topic in the podcast. Robert Bent works with the VC fund Vine Ventures and is co-founder and CEO at Othership, a global community to improve mental health in an accessible way. Othership combines beautiful social spaces that deliver peak experiences and a mobile app that teaches breathwork. Prior to Othership, Robert was Ecosystem Growth Lead at the Ethereum Foundation. He graduated from the Richard Ivey School of Business. Robert's story, though, is a very modern one. By late 2013, after being super successful in tech and his career, Robert hit rock bottom. He felt burned out, low, tired from his career in finances and tech. He was struggling with substance abuse problems. So Robert went to Israel. He tried a 10-day Vipassana retreat, which finally sent him to Peru to do ayahuasca. From here, Robert's life changed tremendously. He engaged in breathwork practices, joined Vine Ventures and co-founded Othership. It's just a very short version, but we talk about more in the podcast. Robert's vision, as he says, is to create a space that encourages openness to the awe belonging and interconnectivity that animates the human experiences for a more joy-filled life and living. Robert is building a platform that includes physical spaces and a mobile app, a concert tour throughout the world with breathwork events and a global community. Robert and I talk about the Othership community, how to use ice bathing and sauna to keep reflecting on your psychedelic experience. Why people stop consuming alcohol after they engaged in psychedelics and how a future life with an integrated idea of psychedelics could look like, meaning how we can introduce or reintroduce psychedelics into society in a safe and legal and vetted way. Please enjoy the show with Robert Bent.
Today, I'm very excited to have Robert Bent on the show from Othership and Vine Ventures. We already had a quick check-in recently that we really should come back for a proper podcast because Othership is developing really in a very interesting way. But before we get into your endeavors, um, I've I really researched, obviously, a lot what's out there about you and what I didn't know so far, and I just found, found one article about this, is that you basically got into this whole breath work and, and the activities around othership because you, let's say, dropped out of your first or second career and didn't really want to engage in your, let's say, old startup life anymore. And I always find personally very interesting how you try to keep up a certain life or engagement in an industry you work in my case it was media and then some things are happening and you kind of you feel that you need to leave this place so and i would be really curious if you could talk about how this played out in your case as a very young guy yeah i mean in some ways it was like forced and so it's really hard to make change right i started my career in finance i have a lot of friends who are consultants accountants you know doctors dentists you go to school you make a, your decision when you're 18 what you're going to do what you're going to be and like the person you're at 18 and 30 are completely different people but it becomes very hard to change right humans are naturally uh, afraid of uncertainty afraid of a new afraid of unknown and so You know, oftentimes you choose your job and you're like, oh, well, I'm just going to stick with it. Two more years, I get the promotion, you know, four more years, I'll be at this level and then I'll have more money. And so for me, I got into startup um, primarily to make money. I thought it was the fastest way to get rich. And so I was working in finance before as an investment banker, hated it and, you know, made that decision at 18, like, oh, my dad's in business. I want to go into business. <laughs> so I went, you know, went to business school and like the smartest kids at business school try to be bankers. And I was like, oh, well, I'm going to do that just fucking hated it. Switched careers. So lucky enough, I was working during the credit crisis and the hedge fund I worked at imploded. So kind of forced career shift. And at that time I was like, oh, well, I still want to be successful. I'm going to, I'm going to do my own startup. That's what like kids are doing. That's the fastest way. And I found a technical co-founder. We built a product. We raised money again, like didn't care about the product at all was like, this is a good opportunity. You know, I was thinking I was 24 at the time and like being successful was the most important thing in my life to me. And so built this company and ended up failing after four years. And it was just such a gut-wrenching, difficult experience of, you know, is it going to work, losing money, losing investment, firing people, whole deal of like going through a huge crash and burn. Um, and at that stage, I just, you know, was 28, was struggling with drug use and was just kind of at rock bottom. And so it's like, hey, the, this idea of just trying to make money and be successful is like my driving most important thing. You know, it was like, I want my parents to be proud of me. I want people to think I'm important. I want to feel important and feel good. And that's such a strong draw in your early 20s to feel validated and seen and, and loved. And um, yeah, at that point, I just realized like, hey, maybe I, this isn't working <laughs> well for me at all. And, um, I should reassess. And so that's how I actually got into, you know, health and wellness and meditation and breath work and all these other practices. And, and can you talk about how back then you got in touch with this first? Because right now it's like you go on Instagram and after three seconds, you would have like a meditation app that's presented to you. But 
let's say, I feel like maybe five years ago, you still actively had to go to a yoga studio or like maybe not in California, but like in the rest of the world, basically. Yeah. So this is like nine, 10 ish years ago. And so, okay. you know, meditation is a thing, headspace exists. And I was reading Tim Ferriss and I was really inspired by what he had done. It was like, Hey, this guy, not much older than me, kind of on his own, started his own business and then really cared about performance and also like happiness. And so I, I never really had a spiritual practice. I wasn't super religious. I'm, I'm very like technical person, skeptical. So, you know, this idea of like the universe and all these things, I was like <laughs> kind of allergic to it in some ways. Like just yeah. like, mm, not for me, but I could look at entrepreneurs who are successful because that was so important to me and see like what they were doing to feel better. And so I started doing, you know, making the bed in the morning and the, and the like five minute journal and okay, five minutes of meditation. And I just kind of put my own program together with this idea of if I won my morning, you know, I'd win my day. And that was kind of like Tony Robbins and Tim Ferriss and all these entrepreneurs, like, you know, I'll wake up at six in the morning and do these things. And so that's how I actually got into, um, learning about meditation. And I was just doing that because it was in such like a difficult state where, you know, on weekends I would start drinking alcohol and like disappear, start doing drugs, would, you know, disappear for like three days, didn't have a job, was really concerned about like what my skill set was because I did the startup and I'd done finance before and both had failed. And I just had a, like no self-confidence. And so I got started on that path. And then one of my friends who was deeply into meditation, we were just having a chat one night at a nightclub and I was talking about headspace and he told me about Vipassana meditation. And that kind of stuck with me, right? It's this idea of 10 days, 10 hours a day, a hundred hours of meditation straight. And it's kind of this thing you hear, you're like, whoa, that's crazy. But then, you know, my personality, I'm very into extreme things. And so it stuck with me. And I had moved to Israel to get away from alcohol and drug use and just kind of restart my life. Again, from listening to Tim Ferriss, it was like, change your surroundings. And so it's like, okay, you know what? That seems scary, but I'm going to go. So I moved from Toronto to Israel alone, um, totally like, you know, built, built a life there over a year. And on the way during Christmas break, I didn't have the money to come home. And so I remembered like, oh, this Vipassana thing. Okay. That's cool. Like I'm, I'm now meditating every morning, 10 minutes. I'm going to try it. And so I went into, you know, signed up and did this 10 days of meditation. And I started to become aware of just my feelings that are on autopilot. And so what does that mean? If you're listening, it's like you wake up in the morning, first thought, check my phone, you know, what's on Twitter, what's in discord, what's on Slack, what are my emails saying, fight or flight triggered, right? And the rest of the day, it's like, okay, I have these 15 fires that people have emailed me about, then my day ends and it's like, oh, what am I going to eat? I'm hungry. You know, what about my kids? Oh, I'm going to go out tonight. What do these people think about me? Like nonstop. So there's not a lot of time in a day to just check in and, and make a real decision. It's almost impossible to do. And so when I did that meditation retreat, all those thoughts, like after one day, two days, three days, you start to become aware of just these automatic subconscious thoughts that are being generated. And that was the first time I realized like, you know, why is it so important to me to be successful and be loved? And these things we talked about at first, because before that it was on autopilot. So got into Vipassana. That was my first step into, we'll call it like spirituality, mental health, stuff like that. And at that retreat, I learned about uh, psychedelic medicines. And that was sort of my, my next step. So, and then you 
coming out of a Vipassana retreat, so learning about psychedelics. So then what was the next step for you or the practice that you engaged in? Because I mean, it's like you mentioned Tim Ferriss and he has also a couple of podcasts, how he talks about him going into Vipassana and then connecting it immediately with his following psychedelic experience because a lot of topics came up for him in Vipassana that he realized he could basically just address with psychedelics, for example, which I found a very interesting trajectory towards meditation than entering psychedelics. Yeah, they're, they're very similar, but also different. And so yeah. this is before when I did the Vipassana, was before he had done his Vipassana and openly was talking about psychedelic medicine. So mm -hmm. I, I just, you know, somebody was like, hey, do you want to come try LSD? you know, at sunrise on this university campus. And it's like, okay, sure. <laughs> you know, so, so did that. And then someone there was like, Hey, there's this ayahuasca circle. Do you want to try that? And so I did it. And, and those two experiences were beautiful, but not life-changing. And then I still was drinking less. So, but still like this idea that this wasn't a, a huge problem. And finally I said, you know, I really want to address this problem head on and, and make change. And so I looked all over the internet I found an ayahuasca retreat in Peru. I told parents and friends like you're insane what is this thing like in the jungle again this is a while back there's no how to change your mind yeah, yeah of um, course, yeah. you yeah. know so it's there are people doing this stuff for sure but it just wasn't to the same level and so went to peru with a friend we took like these kayaks into the jungle and it was pretty gnarly like people there were you know uh terminally ill struggling with hardcore opiate addiction sexual assault victims like it was very intense And did four ayahuasca journeys, like very strong medicine to the point of, you know, every night people like screaming and yelling, like, a, like it, I've done it a number of times and, you know, the group really dictates the experience. And when people are going through deep trauma, it can be quite scary. The releases, like it's wild. And so did that myself and it was much different than meditation. This was like feeling into old traumas as a child. Like first time I was bullied, first time I felt unsafe Uh, reasons like when I was 14, why I was even using drugs to like be cool and different. And all of those things came up and sort of were processed. And it was really challenging. It felt like, like there was like a demon, you know, it, like, and not like an actual demon, but it felt like there was my personality was holding on so tight to these beliefs. And the ayahuasca just wanted to like rip them out of me. But it's like you're fight, you're fighting so hard. And then finally you surrender, you know, you'll purge and, and like kind of let go of these pieces of your personality is what it felt like. And that changed everything. After that, I, I felt I had probably about a six month window when I got back where my willpower was just so strong and defined. And so I came back from that experience with a daily meditation practice and, and psychedelic medicines. And, you know, it's just spent like six months on fire. Like my life has changed. I feel amazing. No thoughts of drinking, no thoughts of smoking, no thoughts of drug use, met my wife and then started to put in place a lot of these practices that I had learned and sort of starting to teach them to others. Before we go on in your story, one thing I find very interesting that I realized talking to people who started psychedelic therapy, and even if they didn't have like a, let's say an addiction problem with alcohol, it seems that once you get into psychedelic treatments, you kind of stop drinking. And even like one glass of wine is like, ugh. Jeez, I feel so weird the next day. <laughs> and it, you don't even feel drunk or anything. And I wonder, like, why do you think that is? Why has it such an impact on, like, we grow up in, in our society and 
drinking wine and drinks. It's like, come over for a drink. It's such a normal thing to say, kind of, especially here in Berlin. So why do you think this is disappearing? I really think about that a lot. So this is from personal experience, uh, you know, hundreds of psychedelic experiences and working with like thousands of people and what I've seen. And there's not really hard evidence around this from a scientific perspective. But what I've seen is most people in society today are overstimulated. And so what that means is you're continuously looking at your phone all day. So if you think of how a human being lived a hundred years ago, primarily there's a lot of boredom. There's no computer. Yeah. Maybe you have a book, you're spending a lot of time walking, you're driving around, there's not um, consistent stimulation. And so as a result, all day long, dopamine, neurotransmitter releases. And so we're continuously jacked up into our fight or flight nervous system state, which means we're not in the state of being where we feel like joy, passion, love, laughter, eating, like the, it's called the parasympathetic or rest and digest. Over three months, four months, you start to get so tweaked up from being on all the time, always looking at your phone, always working, always busy, always overwhelmed. And it makes it really difficult to connect. And so in that state, what I find the psychedelic medicines do, like in that state, because you're getting so much stimulation, it makes it easier to need more stimulation. So online shopping, porn addiction, drug use, alcohol, all of these things are all-time highs. And because your your brain is craving continued stimulation. And so when you use psychedelic medicines or go on these meditation routines, it's a pattern interrupt. Totally changes the nervous system response. So, you know, you go into the jungle, you do four ayahuascas, you come back, all of a sudden you, you feel like alive. You feel like you have a lot of energy. Your nervous system response, your willpower has increased for a period of time. And I think when you feel that way, you feel naturally healthy. You don't need these like stimulation you're getting. And so I've just seen oftentimes, and it doesn't last, right? And so that's a big misconception. It's like, oh, I took psilocybin once, my life's changed. No. I haven't seen that personally. <laughs> no. I've seen it as a, as a tool Yeah, sure. where you, if you're going to like a Tony Robbins or some type of personal growth or using coaching, I feel the psychedelics make the mind more pliable. So behavior change is easier, but it's still it's the same as if you don't go to the gym for a year, you're not going to yes. be fit. Right. And so it's kind of something where I would use them before doing deep work. And I think the deep work will allow you to be more effective at making change. Um, but so that's what I've seen is when you take a break, the psychedelics are kind of just like unwinding all that mental stress and trauma that you're holding. So just, you're so tight, stimulated, holding on to all those emotions and it just helps you like release. And then as a result, there's less drive for stimulation, whether it be alcohol or, you know, porn shopping, gambling, all that kind of stuff. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good explanation of it, but just quickly coming back to the psilocybin dosing. I mean, I think twice a year, a high dose is like a good way to stay on the track you would like to be. And I totally agree that once a year or once in a life, it's not going to be enough to do that. But I mean, you feel like some people keep saying that it's like, I once had a high dose and then 20 years later, I still, <laughs> I still think about it. I mean, you can think about it, but it's not going to be in your system anymore, I guess, right? It depends. I mean, I think like you can use these things to make behavioral change. And so mm -hmm. if you make the behavioral change, you know, for example, uh, for me is quitting alcohol and drug use and by drugs, you know, cocaine, amphetamine, stuff like that. Yeah. And so 
yeah, it's been six years now. Wow. And so it's not like I'm having cravings to go and do that again. Um, but there was a lot of behavioral change I made after the deep psychedelic work. And so now I feel maybe once a year I'll do a super large dose and maybe once every like two or three years, uh, some type of retreat. Mm -hmm. But that works for me. And I don't actually really go back to the psychedelic medicines a ton. Um, so I don't think you need to use them all the time, but I also don't think one time will do it. Yeah. And then that's maybe a good idea to jump to Othership because what's so interesting about Othership besides that it's an amazing breathwork app, it's also that you start to create a system around a psychedelic experience that is basically, as we know, like in the meantime, necessary to um, not just have the psychedelic trip and then let's say come back home and uh, be in the same, let's say either shitty environment or you just um, come back to the life that you had before maybe. So you started also two physical spaces with Othership to create them. So maybe you can talk a little about the concept, how this is kind of... Um, let's say, like a necessary add-on for a psychedelic experience? Yeah, I think there was two major problems I saw. So I was sober for four years working in crypto for the Ethereum Foundation and, you know, uh -huh. meditating daily and then also using psychedelic medicines and like trying to teach my friends, you know, like, hey, you know, you've got to do this meditation retreat. Here's this article I wrote. You've got to go down to the jungle and do ayahuasca and here's this thing. And I found two things. One is the average person is not ready for these modalities and doesn't even know they need them. So for most people, like, unless you've had something really bad happen, so strong addiction, some type of, you know, assault or trauma, death in the family, lost your job, a lot of times you're just like baseline shitty. <laughs> and so you're like, fuck, life is hard. I'm overwhelmed, but that's just kind of the way it is. You know, I'm doing this job I hate, which you, we talked about yeah. at the start of the, the session. And like, you know, I live for the weekends on the weekends, I drink a bunch and that's just normal life. And that's yep. like, 95% of people are in that bucket. And so those, for that person, you know, there's no thought of, oh, I should go to therapy. Like it's very hard to go to therapy. You need to, you know, sit down with somebody, be vulnerable, explain to a stranger, like your deepest hurts, which a lot of times is very hard to even go into. Like we don't have emotional practices in our society. It's not common to say like, how did I feel today? Oh, I, I felt a lot of guilt or I felt imposter syndrome was just, we just don't do that. No. And so you can't tell someone, Hey, you need psychedelics. because they're like, for what? And so biggest problem I found was most people don't even know they need help with mental health. And they think it's like, because I'm sick, you know, I need to go to the doctor. The other problem we found is, okay, you know, yeah, I do feel shitty and I want to change it. So I'm going to go do psychedelic medicine. So I saw like probably sent 30 friends struggling with alcohol and drugs to psychedelic medicine retreats. And I would say 95 to 98% that got back within one month were back on drugs. And the same thing was, hey, this experience is amazing. I feel different. I'm a changed person. And the experience is always beautiful and valuable. So nobody said like that was a waste of time. But it was like they came back and were like, my life's changed. And one month later, like back to their old habits. And the reality is you come home and like same friends, same wife or girlfriend, same job, same eating patterns. So what I just found is a single psychedelic retreat. And this is backed by evidence in this documentary Gabor Mate does on ayahuasca and, and drug addicts in Vancouver. So, you know, if you go on this one retreat with no other practices, very unlikely to make behavioral change. I saw mm -hmm. these things that worked so well for me, not working for most friends because one, like the prep 
for them. Like there's not a knowledge that I need this and that it can actually make change. And then two was, you know, when I come back, what do I do? And so we created this entire system that combined a whole bunch of stuff to solve these problems. And so one is the prep piece and we found the ice bath and the sauna and which in Berlin is like massively used and um, mm-hmm. spa culture, banya culture, bathhouse culture is massive across Europe. But we found that the ice bath specifically, so as pioneered by Wim Hof, who many of your listeners probably know, I was always going to bathhouses because I'm sober. I didn't want to be around alcohol. So I'd go on like Friday night and that's what we do to party is like these amazing saunas and off course performance. And um, <laughs> what is that? What's an off course performance? I was thinking you might know <laughs> and because it, they, they do them in Vibali. It's basically this art oh, of yeah, towel of course, waving. Yeah. yeah. So they do this art of uh, towel waving and performance in the sauna and people come and they watch and it's like going to a show almost uh, beautiful okay. essential oils on the stove. And so, Saw that and then also was obsessed with the cold. And what I found with the cold, the ice bath, the cold plunge triples the neuropinephrine in the brain, which is a neurotransmitter responsible for mood, attention, vigilance, your mind saying like, Hey, be aware. I'm, I'm here. So any, this to-do list, all this thinking mind stuff we talked about a couple times on the show so far, it goes away. You become completely present and aware. And I was like, Holy shit people feel this in one session. This is the intro to meditation. Like this is it. This is for the lawyers, the bankers, the type A people. They can feel this and are like, fuck yeah, I'm going to come back and do this. And so we kind of found, um, we had built an ice bath in my backyard. Then in my garage, we built like a mini sauna, an ice bath, a tea room. We started having classes and we saw that people would do the ice bath and then they would start doing the breath work. And then they would kind of be open saying, oh, wow, you know, I'm starting to change. This is really interesting. And so we started designing around the ice bath and sauna classes. So anger release, stuff that you would do in a traditional therapy class, forgiveness, gratitude exercise. So you would come in, you know, you'd have seven people all share that like a moment they were angry. They'd come in the sauna, we'd turn out the lights and they would scream as loud as they can. And then feel like amazing. They'd all go in the ice bath. And so a lot of stuff that people were doing in therapy for $35. It was like self-guided therapy in a way, uh, but it was fun and exciting and cool, the amazing lighting. It felt like you're going to Soho house. So the whole thing felt more like a fitness class than a doctor's office. And so we realized from doing that, that half our customers started being like, oh, we've done the ice path, we've done the breath work, we're interested in psychedelics. And I was like, holy shit, this is both creating the intro to meditation and it's creating the intro to psychedelics. And then We saw a lot of people who were coming back from retreat would come to the space for integration. They would come and like hang out. They'd be coming two or three times a week. And everybody in the space was interested in mental health, psychedelics, biohacking, creativity, entrepreneurship, all these things. So it was a community that's kind of, we don't care about partying and being unhealthy. We wanted, you know, we want to work on ourselves together in a way that felt cool. And so that seems like, oh my God, this is it. It's after your experience being around others who are on the same page doing experiences that are healthy. And so just kind of evolved. And then, you know, COVID hit, we started doing breathwork online for our entire community. And breathwork is really powerful because where meditation is awareness and challenging, breathwork is instant state change. So you can ramp up the nervous system, push the gas like a coffee. You can push the brake on the nervous system and it's very relaxing, you know, so sort of like, you know, after work or before sleep, quieting the mind or You can really push breath work, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, one hour, and you can shut down the part of the brain responsible for thinking mind and process emotions. And so 
that's what's, you know, similar to a psychedelic experience where they'll talk about a change in your sense of self, your self-perception, your perception of time and have these amazing emotional releases. So we started doing that online and then that became a course and then that became an app. And then we're like, whoa, shit, we should open a major, like a big space. And so we opened a big space that launched a few months ago and it's like 50 person sauna, four ice baths and these classes at scale. So think of your favorite fitness class. There's an instructor there who's guiding you maybe through a fear release, you know, a Friday night dance party, some are more silly and fun, but gratitude exercise. We have one called heart balloon where you're imagining all the best moments in your life from like two-year-old you, four-year-old, first day of school, first day, getting married, birth of your kids. And you're like feeling your heart beat more and more while somebody's playing a giant drum. So there's just, the idea was now that there's this system where you can go and do therapy like classes in community. Mm -hmm. You can learn more about these experiences in a way that's accessible. So it's not so hard as meditation. It's not illegal like psychedelics. And you start to get, wow, this is, you know, it's helping me. This is great. And people get deeper and deeper. And then when they come back, they have their community as well. And then when they go home, they can use the app and continue with breath work to electronic music. That's super fun. And so the idea is really like, this is your starting point to get into this lifestyle and something really unique we've did versus a lot of the stuff is we didn't focus on any spirituality. Just said like, you know what? The experiences themselves will have a spiritual element, but we're not going to talk about it in our language because it's very accessible for all. So everything is built on like immediate feedback and the experience, fun and beautiful experiences. So, you know, the space, like every single smell, how it feels, the towels, the lighting, the music that's playing, the instructors. It's a full-on hospitality experience versus, you know, a normal clinic you might go to. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And then we anchor everything in emotions. And so I've talked about it a bunch. Emotions are universal. Anger, guilt, shame, compassion, forgiveness, gratitude. Like everybody has felt all of these. And so it's much easier to speak in that language. And through that, I think we've cracked the code to get millions of people interested in mental health. Would you say it's like a preschool for psychedelics, breathwork? <laughs> I, I think it can do many things. So one mm -hmm. is just the foundation. Like you take 25,000 breaths a day. Mm -hmm. Your breath actually controls your respiration rate, your heart rate, your circulation your emotional response, your hormonal response, your immune system, your blood flow to different organs. So breath is, you know, your oxygen absorption. So breath is responsible for every chemical process in the body. So it's, it's basically the pillar of health. So that's the number one thing to understand is most mm -hmm. people are breathing improperly. And we're doing that because we're chronically stimulated by our phone. So we start breathing through our mouth and chest. And because of our diets of so much acidic forming food, they cause us to overbreathe. So I would say breath is one, like the pillar of all health right up there with like sleep, uh, diet and exercise. If you're feeling fatigue, uh, lack of focus, poor sleep, dehydration, a lot of those can be related to breath. And then at the same time as it's the backbone of your health, it also does three things. So one is pushing the gas pedal in the nervous system which we talked about. So it's like having a coffee. It's creating that fight or flight state, which is great in the morning, possibly before a meeting when you want to get energized. The other is pushing the break. And so that's after work or before sleep. And that's slowing the heart rate, long, slow exhales, breath retentions. And the third piece, which is just one piece of it, is this like psychedelic training. And so we'd always recommend before psychedelic medicines, 
you're practicing on surrender, shutting down the part of the mind, the default mode network, what we believe to be happening is that you're reducing the oxygen flow and absorption to the brain by like 80%. And as a result, the default mode network, it's likely it shuts down. The limbic system gets all these distress signals. And so your sense of self, sense of time completely distorts. And in that space, what they believe to be happening is called like somatic completion where your body is processing emotions. So it's very similar the results to psychedelics. So people after these deep breath work report like huge increases in life satisfaction, huge increases in feeling of relief, huge increases in sense of self. Um, but the experiences themselves aren't that similar. So it's very unlikely to have like massive visualizations, getting stuck in trauma loops. It's more of like an autonomic response. Mm-hmm. So while I would say the breathwork is fantastic prep for like letting go and for processing emotion, they are still different, but like training wheels is a good explanation, but also breathwork can be used, you know, with psychedelics pre and post as well. So it has its own benefits too. And do you imagine like, let's say in five years when there's more room around once the decriminalization or even legalization has happened in some places. So because I, I thought it was always interesting how Michael Pollan is writing about imagining these new, let's say, centers where people could go beyond the purely medical approach, which is, of course, the base that we kind of all work on now, like all the science that's happening around all the, the amazing studies, the amazing scientists. But do you imagine like centers, let's call them in like, let's say, bigger cities or even maybe in a countryside where you would have all in one, like you would have the breathwork department, but then you would also have psychedelic guidance with people who would actually talk to you before what might be, you know, a good substance to try. So, and um, to, yeah, to really kind of reintroduce it in in a way that it wasn't possible in the 60s, for example. Well, there's a few interesting things. So one is the psychedelic experience is important, but it's a small part in terms of volume of what's required. And so, yes, if I have this center that I go to out of the city, like how often can I go there? And yeah. so what I actually think is the psychedelic piece will become smaller and smaller and the stuff around it will become more and more important. And so right now in the research, the research is all on PTSD, depression, smoking cessation, um, you know, drug addiction with Abigail. It's all for people who are mentally ill. And the reality is most people using psychedelics, the millions and millions and millions of people don't qualify as like PTSD and, yeah. and depressed. Yeah. And so it's one thing if you're taking psychedelic medicines to re-regulate a dysregulated nervous system, which is often what's happening. It's another thing if standard person is, is taking these things. And I think for the average person, who's probably your listener, who's like an enthusiast, who's gone on retreat, who's seen massive change, that doesn't last forever. And so what people are realizing is like, hey, I've done this. I did it once per year. I've done it twice per year. My life's not changing. And so all of the stuff, you know, you hear like integration, but nobody really knows what it exactly. is. <laughs> and so I, I think what will actually happen is a lot of stuff that made religion effective will become effective. And, and this is like a non-popular point or something nobody's talking about. But I think what you said before is like, hey, I've taken psychedelic medicines. I don't want to drink anymore. A lot of times it's often I've taken psychedelic medicines. I want to be a better person. I want to have better connection in my community. And so what I think will start to pop up, you know, in our generation, the rates of religious belief, especially in North America, have like plummeted. 
you know, for Catholicism and all these things. So many people don't have a system of beliefs. Mm -hmm. And so what I've seen happen in my own life is I took psychedelics. I'm healthy now, physically and mentally. I want to be more involved in my community. And so I don't think it's like a retreat center we'll go to. I think it's yeah. like in my community, a place where I hang out with people weekly, a place where I can give back, a place where I can learn, this place where I can like be a good person. And I think places like that, like kind of new religions, but aren't based around spirituality, but just groups, you know, like we have in the way our business started, it was in a garage and a few hundred people and just people wanted to be around because it's, you know, people like working on themselves, doing better. And so I think that'll spread um, really rapidly over the next 10 years. Well, I mean, also, I think it's what you just said, it's something I think about a lot is like once you engage on a, let's say, new spiritual journey, even before psychedelics, even if you just get into breath work and yoga and meditation, you really start to feel that you might have to leave certain parts of your old community, sometimes even people that you know for a very long time, but you can't really relate to them anymore because you don't want to entertain old ways of thinking, um, maybe very negative ways of thinking. And um, they might tell you, wow, you're becoming this goop person. <laughs> It's like, you're crazy. You have all these crazy ideas now. But the reality is like, at one point, you're even making a decision without realizing it, that you might leave some people not behind, but you just need to make a decision to maybe not engage with them anymore. And then at the same time, if you're able to find a new community that has maybe similar experiences and also has a similar way of looking at things, it's like a really big relief that you're not alone just doing this. And uh, as we all know, if you do something on your own, you might question yourself way more. Is this really the right thing? But I know this person so-and-so for such a long time. How can I not be relating to them anymore? So, so this is something I feel that a lot of people never really talk about how this transition is a very difficult one sometimes. And also, especially after psychedelics, where you don't rationally can actually explain it to yourself, why you no longer engage with this or that person or this and that job, whatever it is. So, and um, I feel like what you are building is like a place where you can redefine yourself also in the best positive way without being a crazy over-spiritualized monster or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly that. And a lot of friends I've seen, you know, it's, oh, I've done this. I've had this awakening. I'm going to move to Costa Rica yeah. and I'm going to make a retreat. And like, great. But the reality is people in cities need the most help and retreats aren't accessible. Even if you can go once, it's just not changing someone's life in the same way that local based community is. Yep. And so to me, the most important thing in the psychedelic space is not like drugs, legalization, any of these things. It's like places for community. That's like the number one thing mm -hmm. we need. And so what I think is going to have the most effect and be like super powerful. And so, yes, I do think there will be these retreats and at the retreats, they'll have all kinds of modalities, you know, intake, prep, therapy, um, healthy eating, fasting, breath work, all this stuff you might do over a seven day period. But the real work is when you get back to where you live and like creating community locally. And that's kind of what I'm most excited about. Let's quickly also talk about the Vine Ventures Fund. That's also a very specific, one of its kind fund. So so you were one of the founders, right? 
what made you build this specific fund? Because as you can explain, it's a very specific one. Yeah. So myself and my partner, I mean, it's 99% Ryan Zur. And so Ryan is, you know, he got me into crypto. He was the best man at my wedding. Oh. He's like one of my best friends. And we had done the ayahuasca journey I had mentioned together. He was the only one who put his hand up and said, I'll come and do this with you. And we both had life-changing experiences. He actually on that retreat met his wife, who was one of the facilitators who he now has a family and two kids with. So that like retreat changed everything for both of us. And when he did really well in crypto, he said like, Hey, I'm, I'm you know, firstly, um, his wife's also a medicine facilitator. And so, you know, during crypto, we would be doing these gatherings with a whole bunch of the team and like external folks. And it was like really impactful. And so there's just a lot of deep passion around, you know, for me, psychedelics curing addiction and, and for him, um, the same, like how he built his family. And so he really wanted to give back and first starting to invest in psychedelic medicines because he was personally interested. So he started donating to maps, going to these dinners, going to conferences. And I was going with him because it was super interesting. And he took a lot of his personal funds that he had made from crypto and started putting them into psychedelics. And then he had this really cool idea around, look, I don't really care about the money. I really want to like move things forward. And so he actually Vine has a reciprocity pledge to give 50% of profits to research, which is insane. And like, quite frankly, yeah. wouldn't really make sense, but it does because Ryan uh, has done quite well in crypto. And so that reciprocity pledge, that giving has brought all the best deals in the space because a lot of entrepreneurs are like, wow, that's really cool. Like, especially in psychedelic medicines, there's so much concern around being in things for the right reasons. And so it just says, it shows like, Hey, we have super high integrity. We're like psychedelic medicine users. They've changed both our lives. And like, we're giving back, putting our money where our mouth is with this pledge. And it's been really cool. It's been a great way to like meet a lot of the best researchers in the space to eventually fund their, their research. And then after that, because of that pledge, um, Ryan was able to build a relationship with maps and he spent, um, a, a long amount of time helping them think through, okay, MDMA is about to become legal through phase three trials and commercialized. And that's going to require $150 million. How are they, we going to get that money? And so, because Ryan was really well-trusted in the space, he spent a year like negotiating and putting together this instrument that allows maps to raise the money without uh, becoming a for-profit corporation, which is huge yeah. because yeah. they'll still be able to make decisions around making MDMA um, therapy accessible from a cost standpoint and profit isn't the motivator. Um, so Vine is really unique in that they've given away like half their profits, which is unheard of. And then have spent like a whole bunch of time. Like there's no real monetary value in doing this deal. It was like a massive amount of work. So the team at Vine, Daniel Lozon, Ryan, Zach have spent like almost a year at this point negotiating and then raising the money because it's the right thing to do. Um, so it's just a really nice model of how to move forward in a new way, in a new space where you're like heart centered and giving back and actually doing it. Right. You see, you hear a bunch of funds like, oh, we're doing this, but like they're actually doing it, which is pretty exciting. So, and um, you just mentioned the FDA approval possibly in the next year by the FDA. So this is kind of the internal <laughs> moment that nobody talks about, but everybody's like, oh, 23, 23. So, and I mean, in Europe, at least, even in the European Union, in the lobbyist context, I heard a couple of people saying, okay, 
this is the moment when you want to be ready to go. So until then, everything has to be set up by your company and everything. So what do you think from an American or Canadian perspective, what do you think will change? Let's say it really, presumably it will happen. MAPS already has set up this huge conference for next year to celebrate this. So what do you think will be the biggest changes when this really will happen? which it will. So all speculation on my behalf, I don't have any like extra information, but something I'm excited about is, okay, one, there's a business model here. Two, like insurance needs to be figured out. But if this is something that doctors can then prescribe for PTSD, extremely exciting. It'll mean that like the next wave of therapists can be trained. And so if therapists have continued business, it means there's a career here. And so a big problem now is even if MDMA becomes legal and commercialized, like who is leading the therapy. And there's not even close to enough therapists in mental health in general. It's like a massive problem. Yeah. So I think if there's new medicines that like have extreme effectiveness, it's going to be exciting for training new therapists. So, so that's one thing I'm really excited about. And then two is once it's used for PTSD, it can be prescribed off label for couples therapy. And like the amount of PTSD in the grand scheme of the US is a small percentage, very, very brutal illness, but small percentage. So it's Hard to assume that in a medical context, people with PTSD taking MDMA is going to lead to this massive psychedelic breakthrough in terms of like the mainstream understanding it. But what is very interesting to me is off-label couples therapy. Yeah. And there's research now where they're allowing for one person in the couple to have PTSD and one to be healthy. The results are like extremely effective, amazing. And so what I'm really excited about is maybe it's three years, maybe it's five years, but Imagine, yeah, I think divorce rates are like 50% in North mm -hmm. America, something After crazy. After COVID too, yeah. Higher, so, higher. You know, imagine it's 100 million people, right? Or like 75 million people. And imagine every one of those people tries MDMA before divorce and tries MDMA therapy. And that to me is how you go from, you know, mental health, uh, something for people who are very sick to, you know, kind of now this is something actually for mental wellness and it's for everybody. And so once that gap is bridged, I can see that I can see there being like major change in public perception and public usage, and that will open the gateway. So that's what I'm most excited about is couples therapy is the unlock for the mainstream, like 100 million people trying MDMA. I think that's probably the closest path to like mass mainstream use. Mm -hmm. In Amsterdam, at Future, we work with them very closely. So they have already this kind of couples and truffles program. The people approaching us inquiring with this, they're either in their late 50s and facing divorce, like that facing, but they they say, okay, we either get a divorce now or we stay together and redefine our relationship. And the other group of people is people in their 20s, rather in their 20s, who really want to immediately before maybe getting into a stronger like relationship or marriage, really want to find out what's going on with them. And it seems that these two age groups, I feel, are the furthest away from um, the story that you kind of learn, like you have to marry in your 20s, 30s, you have to have two children, you have to have a small family, that a lot of people can't really or don't want to fulfill anymore once they're over 50. So it's a very interesting change in once the stories you grew up with are either not in your mind planted enough or you're bored of them. So these people seem to be very open for couples therapy. 
after 50 and before 30? Yeah, we've seen in our community, like many people, even, you know, with young kids. And so you're 30 yeah. and like, you've already made that decision and you're with the family and with the kids and it's yeah. hard. Like, it's so hard to find intimacy yeah. and, and connection. Everyone's on their phones all day. And so like, what better way to immediately create a safe environment? And so I'm a huge believer in MDMA therapy once a year for everybody. Like, why not for you and a, your partner, you know, is it creating a safe space to share? I think it's like, you think about exercising at the gym, eating healthy, sleeping, like, what do you do for your relationship? Like, why should it just be good? You know, like it's putting in the work. And so, yeah, I'm just so bullish on couples therapy and psychedelic medicines. I think it's an amazing tool. Have you done it? Yeah, absolutely. Already? Yeah. We don't use um, a therapist for that. So we'll mm -hmm. do, uh, my wife and I will take MDMA together. And we learned this from a friend is, you know, you sort of any grievances that are building. So like, let's say, you know, you might do it twice a year. And so what you'll do is write down a little book, like things you're fighting about, things that are sore points, things that maybe like you don't want to say to, to create a fight. And then you'll write them all down. And then when you take the MDMA together, usually the first little hour is like, Intense is coming on, so we'll sit with blindfold, play music, and then we'll, you know, get into it and just look through the points and talk through them. And it just gives a safe environment where you, and it can be totally, I mean, I'm not like promoting any psychedelic use on the show, but just me personally, it, I'm um, in that environment. It's very safe. I'm doing it like without a guide. It just puts me in a state where we can chat without feeling like we're going to be judged. And yeah, it's like absolutely tremendous. We have a, breathwork session on our app actually called couples energy oh okay um yeah and you, you breathe together with your partner it can be done like hey you're looking for a date on a friday night and you know you don't have something and it's like hey this is super easy and so you use um eye gazing breath syncing different breathing techniques hand holding visualizing like a time you supported your partner a time they supported you and it's amazing for sort of going deep uh with each other and so we'll actually do that breathwork when we're using mdma and it's like just amazing sounds great before we hop off here what are your plans for othership i mean now like i think you have one physical location for, in toronto right already two like I'm yeah sure, two like, two yeah, physical two. locations in toronto we're building a third it's hoping to be open in the next eight months and then mm -hmm. we're just about to do open a fundraise um to open two in new york and one in los angeles so mm -hmm. my goal is to have four open in the next sort of 18 months four new locations Wow, this sounds good. And what about Europe? Is it something you're looking at? It, it, I mean, it's. I just honestly, <laughs> one thing is we know. Okay. I know these cities well. I know the North American consumer. I know their language. Europe is a whole different thing. It's many different countries, many different cultures. There's also yeah. already like many, many, many bathhouses. So what makes this different? One thing that's interesting in North America is the sauna and cold plunge are not popular they're not anywhere really and so oh. yeah it's a it's very okay. you, know, you might have in a city the size of toronto millions and millions of people two two bathhouses really one to two right where oh, it's like in yeah. berlin there's probably 50 you know and then in the surrounding area there's probably hundreds right it's just part of the culture so yeah. i would i could see europe but it's just not in the immediate like it's so hard mm -hmm. to like build and scale these what yeah. it requires so for now the next like three to four years it's going to be uh only north america likely okay and what is the secret to get into an ice bath because i could not 
do it so far. I'm still kind of trying cold showers that I know from Kundalini Yoga and it's great. But even there, I'm like, oh my God, like a cold shower. So what is the secret to start with ice bathing? Yeah. So the first is understanding the why. And so mm -hmm. most people, I'm, you know, I live in Berlin. I hate the winter. I don't go outside. I hate cold. Everyone hates the cold. 98% of people, it's like, why mm -hmm. would I do that? You know, and it's uncomfortable. And so it's understanding that this is, you know, outside of fasting, the best thing you can do for lifespan. So it's, you know, tripling, quadrupling the immune system. It's reducing inflammation system-wide, which improves recovery, protects against disease, protects against aging. It's like, you know, boost your metabolism. Like there's just all these hormonal cascades happen from the cold. So first thing is understanding like this is extremely beneficial for me. It's going to make me feel amazing. It's going to get me into that meditative state of flow, like instantly. It's like, okay, I get it. I should do this. So that's the first step. And then it's like, how do you do this? And so when you step in and sit down, yeah, you know, you're, you're creating a fight or flight response. So it's like 30 seconds, like what's happening, what's yeah, happening. Yeah. And so the misconception is that that's going to continue, but it doesn't. And so if you can make it to one minute and control your breathing through long, slow exhales, you're teaching your body when fight or flight is triggered. You're teaching your body and mind, your nervous system, you're learning to strengthen it and control it to pull it back down into the parasympathetic through your breathing. And why that's important is because like, oh, I'm angry, I'm fearful, I'm anxious. When those things start to happen, you lose control, right? But you can't really train for anger. Once you're angry, it's too late. Yeah. <laughs> and so you're in this safe environment, you're training your nervous system. And so, you know, it's really important to remember, okay, I'm just going to take like seven deep, slow breaths. And about a minute in, you hit this bliss point where you're like, whoa, okay, that nervous system response is under control. I'm in the zone. I'm here. I'm super present. This is crazy. And so one, mm -hmm. you know, for first timers, if you're really struggling, you can keep your hands out, your palms of your hands and your feet have this like glabrous skin that really um, takes in cold faster. So you can keep your hands out, get in up to your shoulders and just breathe. And if you aim for two minutes, about a minute in that sensation, you'll let go. And then after about five, six, seven times, you acclimate your nervous system. You know how to just shut it off. And so I would say it's practicing seven or eight times, knowing that you want to stay in two minutes without your hands in and mastering your breath and then understanding the why. And if you do that, uh, you'll have a cold plunge practice for the rest of your life. Very interesting. I have to look into it again. I mean, I once did this cryotherapy, you know, this, mm -hmm. but I mean, I just did it once and I, I couldn't really stay in it very long, but I felt like it was in LA, you know, one of these places, but the feeling afterwards was actually pretty amazing. So it's just like you say, the moment that you have to embrace this moment in a different way. And, um, but your body tells you, okay, you're cold, but something great is also happening with you here. Yeah, and then, and then the feeling like after you get out, we, we guide people like, hey, we have sound bowls, essential oils, a whole bunch of stuff, and, and yeah. it's done in a group. And so you're in it, and even if you don't yeah. feel the like the first time, you don't get to that state of just relaxation, when you come out, you feel alive. Like you're like, wow, I'm not thinking about any worries. I'm here. The worst thing could be happening in your life, and it will give you some space. So like breakup, you know, death in the family, grief, anxiety, all those things gone as you become completely present. And so when you come out, you feel just alive. You feel like you're an advanced meditator. You feel unstoppable and you're ready to share and connect with people. And so even if the experience is hard, the after effect, it lasts all day. You just feel amazing. Wow, very interesting.
One, one quick question before we go. This thing in Greece, is that still happening that you were talking about? Yeah, I have a discussion about it tomorrow morning. So we will, oh, we okay. will see. But if it is, yeah. uh, it would be June 16th to 19th within those dates. Okay. And so we'll try and to plan it now. But yeah, it would be a, the goal would be to do a 500 to a thousand person breathwork event, uh, at the Soho House Rock House. Then mm -hmm. a video, a documentary around conscious nightlife and like nightlife without alcohol. And so how do you replace? It's still very hard for people to go out because yeah, they feel yeah, like course, yeah. social anxiety, you know, and so it's creating a container where people aren't on their phones, where we're using breath work, music, dancing, things like that to a group share, journaling, um, to kind of create that sense of awe and belonging uh, as a new way to socialize. So yeah, the, the plan is hopefully to do it between June 16th and 19th and we'll let you know about the Yeah, event. absolutely. Because my friend, she's buying a house in Naxos and she's like, when is this happening? When is this happening? <laughs> so, um, yeah, let me know. All right. Thank you so much for being on a show. Very interesting. Very great way of talking about things and um, have a great day in Toronto. Thanks so much, Anne. You as well. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the New Health Club show and please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or if you would like to sign up for our newsletter, please go to www.thenewhealthclub.de and subscribe to the newsletter. Again, please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Clubhouse, of course, there's also a New Health Club now, or even better, sign up to our newsletter on thenewhealthclub.de. I talk to you very soon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.